0: And Lord, we do desire this morning to see something of you, to be awakened to your presence. We know you are here. We want to come into an experience of that to, in fact, see something of you that we may bow down and worship you, and that your word might quicken our hearts to be responsive to you and obedient and desirous of living differently from the rest of the world. And as this passage deals with some of those issues, that it would be clear in our thinking that we might know how to respond to each circumstance, each situation. So we commit our time to you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I wore a t-shirt for Andrea, today I wore a t-shirt, t-shirt, t-shirt for Terry. <laughs> this is the uniform that the Bobos should have worn yesterday, because... Last time they wore it, they beat Nevada. I think they're still number seven. So that's for, for Terry. I had to leave it open, right? <laughs> well, let's get into the Book of Romans. This morning, we're going to continue what we were looking at last time, and really the heart of the whole passage Six, seven, and eight, Romans six, seven, and eight is essentially laid out for us right at the beginning of chapter six. And there are some things in it that we sometimes miss just by not looking at it carefully or thinking about it. So Paul begins by giving us basically an answer concerning an issue of how do you live the Christian life? Now, We'll see he asks some questions in the first two verses there and actually gives an answer. And basically everything else, he's going to expand upon that. He's going to expand on this whole area of whether we go back to the old way of life, now that we have received justification, or whether we avail ourselves of what God has provided, another Option, A different option. So that's what this passage has to do with. And obviously, believers don't change or our nature doesn't change over time. So what the believers in Rome faced, we face today. So the main division, chapter 1 through 8, essentially, along with an introduction, we have God providing righteousness and the fact that mankind lacks it. Chapters 1 through the middle of 3, but God has provided a means to escape that condemnation. That's 3 through the end of 5, the middle of 3, last part. Theologically, he calls that justification. And now, how do we live that out in everyday experience? That's chapters 6 through 8. So you can divide that portion, sanctification, into three parts. The principles... And one thing I want you to notice, first ten verses, they're statements of fact. Every sentence is in Greek what's called the indicative mood. In other words, they're simple statements. We need to view them as statements of fact. I tried to emphasize last time that it's key to how we think in terms of living life. If you think about it, I gave you several examples of how our mental attitude or the way we think determines how we act, how we live. And it works itself out, even in everyday practical things. We'll come back to that because that's another stress in verse 3 that we'll look at. So in chapter 6, he's laying out the principles, the things that we need to know. Now, he's going to continue throughout Referring back to this knowledge that we need. Do you not know is how he begins verse 3, and he keeps emphasizing knowing. Because if we have the right perspective on reality, what he's giving us is what is real. What God has said is real. He's not talking about feelings. He's not talking about experiences. He's talking about reality that is real, even though sometimes we don't sense it, or sometimes our minds wander away from it. So he's want to solidify in our minds reality before he comes to the very first exhortation, which is in verse 11. So, chapter 6, we have the principles, and because of our nature, in terms of, of the old nature, if you want to describe it that way, we have tendencies in the Christian life to depart from the biblical principles that he laid out. So he deals with that in chapter 7. We can call that problems if we want to alliterate here. So we have principles, we have problems. And then he's going to return to what even begins in the passage that we're going to look at this morning to how do we basically appropriate the power that's available to be able to live the Christian (coughs) life. Chapter 7 is living without that power. Chapter 8 tells us that there's power available. And it's resurrection power. And all of this he lays out at the very beginning of chapter 6. So we have principles, problems, and power. Simple way to remember chapter 6, 7, and 8. So the first paragraph, first 10 verses, he's going to explain this doctrine of sanctification the doctrine or the teaching or you might even say the the means by which God is going to sanctify us so it's doctrinal it's teaching it's truth and we need to think of it as reality in other words this is what is what God has set forth so he raises the issue we've looked at verses 1 and 2 very quickly what shall we say then implying he's already talked about something He's talked about justification by faith. So what do we do now? And the last thing he talked about is this concept of the abounding reign of grace, the possibility of grace as a result of abounding sin, you might say, or abundance of sin. So the question is, shall we, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, there's enough grace to cover any sin or any sinner, no matter how depraved, and even the more sinful mankind is, there's an abundance of grace to cover that. And God gets the glory for it. That's the whole idea of grace. So if that's the case, well, why not just add to that and continue in sin? That'll add to God's glory. And obviously the answer to that, may it never be, in other words, it's totally inconsistent. It is totally contrary, not only to grace, but it's totally contrary to what God desires to do in the believer. So may it never be. And he's going to answer his own question, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? It's totally inconsistent with who we are. So we spent some time looking at that little phrase, continuing in sin. And now he answers it in verse 2, how shall we who died to sin. And last week I spent a lot of time looking at this concept of death, and you have to follow this through. We saw it in chapter 5, so it was just kind of a review of what we saw in 5. He's using the idea or the concept of death, the biblical concept, apart from uh, physical death, ceasing to breathe and your heart stopping the abundance of passages, and particularly here when speaking of death, it's talking about the death. The death, that's why we went back to Genesis 3 where the the death began and where the death came into humanity. So he's talking about the death that was imposed by Adam and Eve. And from Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve did not physically stopped breathing after they sinned, they started to die, physically even. Remember, I gave you several areas. So when we're talking about death, we're talking about what I can describe as a comprehensive idea of death. So how shall we who died to sin still live in it? So he introduces this concept of death to sin. We looked at that last week. That's the answer to the question that he raised. That's the heart of living the Christian life is this concept or this reality. In other words, this is real. There Something has happened to the the person that is trusted in Jesus Christ. Something took place in the life of those that have become justified, as he says. So this is key. Now, he's going to expand on that in verse 3. Also key is this union that has been established between the believer and Jesus Christ. And he's going to use interesting language here that we need to look at. We're going to look at some detail here today concerning a word that throws us off. The word baptize. We'll take a look at that. In fact, I'm going to spend most of the time looking just at that because there's so much confusion even amongst commentators on this passage. So we need to carefully lay it out. So that's the essence. That's the truth. That's the reality that is key to living the Christian life, realizing we are dead to the sin, or you might even say the sin nature. A break has been established between who we are in Adam Remember, he started developing that in the end of chapter 5. A break has been made such that there has been a separation, you might say, a death between us and that old way of life, and a new relationship has been established, a union with Christ. Those two ideas are necessary for us to keep before us in order to be able to not only resist Temptation, resist Satan, and resist the influence of the world itself. So this is the key. This is the reality. This is the truth. Gary. The dead to sin, then um, obviously our sin nature is not dead. That's correct. But so you kind of focused on now there is a separation. So it's really not gone. It's not dead. It's not gone. Well, it is dead, according to Paul. There has been a break between who we are in Adam. Now, we have not lost the potential or the the ability or the inclination that we had. That has not been removed. That is still there. Right. And that's the problem. And we'll talk about that some more when we get to chapter 7. But we need to realize a real break has been made between... Who we are today as believers and who we were before we trusted in Jesus Christ. He's going to expand this, Terry. He's going to say a lot more about it, so we'll talk in more detail. Bill, yeah, is to the power of sin. Okay? Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's the fundamental. That. Yes. Yes. It is The temptation is gone. It's still there, but we no longer are. We no longer have to sin. The yes. Been the power I mean. has been broken. Good way of putting it. Exactly. So that's the principle. In fact, the two principles, the first is an answer, but you could say it's also a principle. So now beginning in four, therefore, if this truth is reality, if we have a union with Christ, therefore, the Greek word un there, we are united to the source of power. We are united to resurrection, united to Jesus Christ and all that he is. We're united to all of the resources that we have in Jesus Christ. This is the significance, and this is an added key to the concept of being united to Christ because that's where we find power to overcome sin. And now 5 through 10, and for if, in other words, if all these things are true as well, Now he's going to expand and explain in more detail this concept of being crucified with Christ. We could call it co-crucifixion. And also resurrection with Christ. You could include burial with him as well. So co-crucifixion, co-resurrection. Now he's expanding upon it or explaining it. And it's not till he lays out the truths of... Actually from verse 1 to verse 10 does he begin to enter into application? In other words, okay, how do I respond to this? This is reality. This is true. This is what God has said. It's not a feeling. It's not some mystical experience. But it's just as true as the law of gravity that you cannot see as well. You know it's there because you have contact with it. So also these are truths, these are spiritual truths that are reality that we need to keep in, in focus in the Christian life. So verse 11, even so, reckon yourself or trust that this is reality. Yeah. Trust in reality, what he's laid out. Ten verses of truth, ten verses of reality. Now he's calling upon us to believe it. And by believing it, we begin the process of appropriating it. Now verses 12, 13, and 14 is going to expand upon that and give us more insight in this application. But the application doesn't come till verse 11. You got it? That's why I'm carefully trying to lay this out because we miss this. We come up with things that we do in, like in chapter seven that he's going to talk about. So how shall we who died to the sin that power of sin that dominates the unbeliever, the unbeliever has no option other than to live in that sphere or that environment of sin, how shall we who die to it still continue to live in it or still live in it? In other words, life after salvation, life after justification, that initial phase of salvation, So the answer that he gave us, and just to review, we talked about death. There's two words that he uses in this context. He uses a verb, aposnesko, 111 times in the New Testament. And by the way, that word is used in a similar way in the Old Testament as well. I showed you from Genesis 3 last time. Basically, the idea to die in general. The idea to die. So the word to die... Broadly speaking, it's used half the time in the sense of your heart stopping and you stop breathing and that's it, as far as this life is concerned. But I showed you many, many passages and the ones that we're talking about here, it's not used in that literal physical sense. You might say in this more comprehensive sense of separation from something. Separation even from the way God created us mentally. So there's a mental death. And the unbeliever is locked into that. He, his thinking is darkened until he trusts in Jesus Christ. It has ramifications in terms of our, our moral life. We leave God out. So it has spiritual ramifications. It has moral ramifications, as has intellectual ramifications, it has emotional ramifications. We went to Genesis 3 for examples of all of that. It occurs in this passage in verse 2, the verb form, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And then there's a corresponding noun, same idea, often trans- translated death. And again, that word, 119 times is used in both senses. Death in terms of no longer breathing, but also death in terms of this separating from something. Death from uh, the ideal of what God has created. Physical death is separation of body and soul and spirit. Physical death. And then there's a second word that's used, necros, 128 times. Same idea, it's a synonym, it's used in the same sense, and in some contexts it's also used in those two senses as well. And it occurs in 6.4 and six nine in passages we were looking at. So I said death, it's used in the physical sense, not in this context. Well, it would include that, but uh, not primarily a physical sense, separation of the body. There's also a few passages, like seven, I believe, that refers to the second death. This is eternal separation from God, ultimate and total separation of the unbeliever, the unbeliever only. And then in this context, I've described it in this more comprehensive or broader sense that has many dimensions to it, many aspects to it. It involves the whole person, mind, body soul emotions heart and you can find verses that attach all of those to the concept of death and that's all that the unbeliever has it also has this idea of separation from wholeness or separation from the way god created us separation from the original creation we see that genesis 3 it goes back to what we looked at last week so a comprehensive sense That's how it's used here. That's the death. It occurs starting in chapter 5 through the beginning of chapter 8 and it has the article. The death. The death. The sin occurs 25 times which is the sin of Adam with the article. But we also have corresponding I don't think it's 25 but it's uh, all of the occurrences are the death as well referring to the death from that sin or the sin of Adam that you and I inherited from him. So death to sin, the concept here is we've died to it if you have become a believer. And as Terry pointed out, the old nature is still there. That's not removed. It's not eradicated. So he's talking about dying, as Bill says, to the power of sin. So when we go back to that old way of life, it's a choice. The unbeliever has no choice. Locked in. Okay? So it's the sin or sin nature that comes from Adam that is in view in this passage. That's what we have died to. It's a real separation that does not take place until there is spiritual birth. That's what Jesus describes as unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. This rebirth. You have physical birth, but you have to have a spiritual birth. It's not going to church. It's not trying to do good works. It's not trying to please God in all the ways that we try. It's a birth, a rebirth, a new beginning, a real separation, a spiritual birth. Let's take a look at this in more detail because this is key. This is important. Somebody look up Galatians 2.19. Somebody look up and whoever gets 2.19, be ready to do chapter six as well Colossians who wants to do the Galatians we've got Galatians Jacob and who blinked over there Connie blinked Colossians 2 and second Corinthians 5 who wants to do that one Jeremy look the uh, yeah, I raised his eyebrow <laughs> And whoever got Colossians 2, why don't you be ready to do uh, Colossians 3? Who wants to do First Peter 2? There we go. Definite volunteer there. No hesitation, no blinking, no twitching, nothing. Okay, hey, Galatians 2, who's got it? 2.19. 2.19. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. Died to the law. He's talking about the same concept. Galatians is a mini Romans, by the way. Galatians deals with the same concepts that he, that Paul is dealing with in Romans as well. He's talking about this death. He's talking about the same death. When I died to sin, in other words, when I was reborn, I died to the law. So you are no longer under law in the sense that this is what directs our life. He's going to expand upon this when we get to chapter 7. Okay, Galatians, you got 6.14? 6.14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of whom Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me (coughs) and I to the world. What does he say there? I have been what to the world? (coughs) Crucified. Same concept we have in uh, chapter 6. In other words, the idea of being dead to what, in this case? To the world. Good. You read the the slide there. We have experienced a real death to the world. As unbelievers, we were connected, you might say, inseparably connected to the thinking, the worldview, All of the issues of the world. Now, it doesn't mean that we go outside of the world, but we do not follow the dictates of the world anymore. So Galatians 6.14 talks about the same death. Conversion, you might call it. Born again, you might call it. Regeneration is another word the Bible uses. At the moment of regeneration, we die to the world. There's another passage, Colossians 2.20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, you subject yourselves to revelation? In other words, why are you going back? If you have, what did it say at the beginning there? Died to the elementary principles of the world, the philosophy of the world, you could say, the worldview, when you became a believer for the first time, you died to the world. You see that? See this recurring theme in every one of these verses and there's others. Death to the world. So we have died to the principles of the world. We develop from Scripture a new worldview. Mary Lee. So this is really just picking up on what he said uh, in 5 about being slaves to sin. Yep. we have been a slave all our life, we have no way of knowing how to live other than as a slave. And so we have to learn not only the freedom, but the responsibilities and all the rest that one, a person who was totally under the control of another, you do this, you do that, yep. blah, blah, blah. Absolutely. You learn how to live completely differently because all those same reflexes are still... That's a good way to run. put it. Very good. Reflexes. Exactly. The reflexes of the old life. And Paul is going to tell us that we need to renew our thinking. This is why... He spends all this time giving us facts, giving us reality, giving us truth. We don't feel it, but it's real. It's true. Second Corinthians 5, this is a very important passage, but notice the concept of death is there as well. We tend to focus on verse 17, but let's start in verse 14. Who's got it? Jeremy, read it loud. Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all. One died for all. Christ died for us. Go ahead. Therefore, all died. Therefore, what? There's the idea, because we're joined to him. We died. We didn't stop breathing, but we had a separation from something. Keep reading. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Keep Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. What he's talking about, we no longer know the, the physical, the material Christ that experienced all the experiences that we had, went through all the emotions we had, all the pressures that we had. All that is true. I mean, we don't change any of that. But now we view him more from the perspective of resurrection, seated at the right hand of the Father, praying on our behalf, doing other ministry in terms of the body of Christ. Keep reading. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Okay, old things from the perspective of God, they're past. There's a new experience that believers can experience now. We are in fact new creatures. We have a new nature. But notice it begins with death or separation. Colossians 3. Then you were raised with Christ. Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. If we have what? What was the first part of that? We were raised with Christ. And this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 6. Resurrection. We've been raised with him. That is a fact. That is a reality. It doesn't seem from our experience that we have been raised. But if we died and we're still alive... We have new life. We've been raised with him. Keep reading. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So now he's encouraging us to make a break from that old way and now experience a new way. Set your mind on biblical truths, basically. Go ahead. Well you die, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Okay, you died, and our lives are now hidden. In other words, the world doesn't see it, but sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes we get clouded and our minds go back to the old way of life. And then 1 Peter 2, 24. Who himself bore our sins. That's Christ bore our sins. In his own body on the tree. Death on the tree, crucifixion. Same idea. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes okay we died to sin so it's not just Paul is the point I'm making that's why I'm giving you Peter as well it's prevalent in Paul all of these verses Galatians Colossians second Corinthians but Peter as well in first Peter 2:24 the concept of death to sin a separation has been made has been established that's truth that's reality. So we've seen key terms here. We've seen sanctification set apart for a purpose. God has set us apart to be used by him. Death, this comprehensive idea of separation. I'm going to try to abbreviate there to capture the whole essence of it. So the principles we've laid out, we've seen that grace is available. That's how he begins with the whole concept of grace. Now this is key. Death To sin is a new reality, a new fact, just as real as the law of gravity. We walk around and don't think about the law of gravity, but it's there. It's real. You don't see it. You don't feel it, unless you're falling off a 10-story building. But it's just as real. This is a spiritual reality that God has established that is just as real, and we need to keep it in our thinking, and then our actions can stem from it. So now 3 through 4, he's going to talk about this uniting. He's raised the issue and actually answered it, this idea of death, to sin. But that's half the story. The other half is not only have we experienced a death, but what does verse 3 tell us? We have also been united with Christ So let's spend the rest of our time looking at this concept. Do you not know? This is a fact. This is reality. This is something you should know. So he raises it from the negative. If you don't know it, in fact, the same word is used in other context of ignorance. The opposite of knowing something, obviously. And it's translated ignorant in some context. Are you ignorant to these things? In other words, are you not into God's word? To understand these realities, these truths, do you not know? Remember last time I told you, I gave the examples of fake news in our culture. The reason you have such extreme efforts to deceive people with false propaganda, you might say, false news or fake news, is in order to influence how you ultimately vote and how you treat Candidates that they are opposed to, so they've gone to the extent of lying to us. You can't even trust the liberal media anymore because of so much fake news. I'm not going to go through these, but gave you a bunch of examples to emphasize the concept, how we think, this is how we respond. Remember the examples I gave you at the very beginning last time? Just practical examples. Fake news and gossip are the same. You're twisting the facts, at least, or distorting the facts, giving a negative impression in order to destroy a reputation. That's what gossip is all about. Just the practical. If you have money in the bank, in your thinking, oh, my bank account is sound, I can write this check. Remember the example? So we write the check, not knowing that your wife already spent the money. (laughs) I had that happened to some friends just yesterday, but it wasn't the wife's fault, the bank's fault they had taken out a sum of money twice. Ah, okay. So even though you think of something, you act on it, you may be acting on what is not real. And what Paul is trying to get us is this is real. Sometimes we act on things that are not real or are past. And the other example of gas in a car, you think you have gas and you drive away, etc. I'm not going to go through all of these. gave the example of athletes, when they have confidence, they do better performance. And he's talking about here in this passage, do you not know that you are a new creature in Christ, a new creation, therefore you can, you have the power and you have the potential to be able to live a godly life of which the unbeliever has no access. It's only those that have that spiritual birth. So acting, and we can add this to our list of principles, and this is important. We're going to see this over and over, not only in this passage, but throughout Scripture, chapter 6. We we saw it in verse 3. Do you not know these things from the negative? And then verse 6, skip down to 6, 6. Knowing this, in other words, this is the truth. This is reality. This is what we should know. And if you know this, then he's going to expand upon that. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, etc. See the idea of knowing in this whole passage. Getting your mind on reality. And he has to emphasize this because it's not immediately evident. Our thinking goes back to the old way of living. The old way of processing data. The old way of not only thinking about reality, but then now we respond in like, in like kind. So the knowledge of the truth is crucial. This is why we study verse by verse to get an accurate picture of reality, an accurate view of what God has revealed. This is why it's important to spend time in God's Word so we have (laughs) His truth, because that's reality. Otherwise, we are responding based on things outside of reality, really, and outside of what God has revealed. Okay, for do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, now he throws us off, not intentionally, but because of church history here, when we see the word baptism, what do we think? Infants. Infants in water, adults Dunking. dunking into a tub. This has been a controversy in church history. And when they translated the King James Version, maybe even before that, they debated, how do we translate this word that we have in the Greek? Because already there were different views in terms of the mode of water baptism. There were different views on it. And because it was so controversial, what did they do? Did they translate the Greek word? They punted. They punted. (laughs) (laughs) They transliterated it as Pat. In other words, all they did was just make it into an English word. And let me show you what it looks like here. So here we have the term baptizo. All they did is just change the last part of it to make it English. They didn't translate it. But the word basically means to dip something. And it was used in... The time before the, the New Testament was written in classical period, it was used as an initiation of a soldier, a young soldier that had completed his training, and he would take his sword and he would dip it in the blood as a worthy warrior that was now going to go to war and draw blood. So now he's identified by this ritual of dipping his sword into blood. He's identified with the army such that now he he goes to war. He's one of them. He's no longer this wimpy guy off the street that needed to go through training. Now he's part of the force that's going to go to war. So it had some identifying aspects to it in that type of a context. It also has this idea of immersing something. And the idea of immersing in water, but they didn't want to translate that because of the controversy at the time that the translation was going into effect. Because sprinkling was already a mode, so when that word occurred in the scriptures, they, as Bill says, they punted and just left it alone. So baptizo, there's another word, bapto, that has the same idea. It was also used in uh, the dyeing of fabrics. If you had a white linen fabric and you wanted it to become bright blue or whatever color, you had a dye, it would be immersed in the dye, and when it came out, it would be looked upon as a new garment, totally different garment. Instead of now white, identified as white, now it's identified as this dark blue, whatever the dye color was. That's the literal idea behind the word. Now, there's a noun part as well, or a noun, a noun form, baptisma. See the same thing, same idea. They didn't translate it. The idea of baptism. So, to baptize or to dip, to uh, to wash, to immerse, and or the noun is to baptize. There's also another form, baptismas. Same idea, same word group. It's a dipping, or a washing, or washings. And you can find that translation. In fact, I'm going to give you one in a moment here. So that's the term. You, you see how we got the word? Rather than translating it, they kind of punted, it, and as a result, there's some confusion concerning the meaning of the word. So I'm going to give you, I don't have time today, but we'll start it, and we'll complete it next week. And what I want to give you is kind of a biblical picture of this broad concept of baptism in order that we can understand how he's using it in chapter 6. One commentator said, we've arrived at chapter 6, and I hope we can get through it without getting wet, (laughs) because Paul is using this word in a sense other than water baptism, okay? Water baptism is not here. Even though for some, every time they see the word, that's where the mind goes. So let me give you a quick overview here. And by the way, I don't know if you <coughs> recognize some people here. Anybody recognize? you got the same uh, shirt on there, Betty. I'll in the cheering squad. in the cheering squad. Yeah, that's my aunt and the bright red and I don't know who else is here. Oh, you have the cap there. Where's your cap today? Anyway, that's the Jordan River, and that's the site that more recent archaeology seems to point somewhere in that area. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. So when we visited that site, we had some baptisms, and I'm just using that as a background slide. The, The word or the concept of baptism is used in three different senses in the New Testament and I'm not going to have time to get through all of them. I'm going to rush through some of them. Certainly it is used in this sense of ritual water baptism, all right? Ritual water baptism, and it is found in different contexts, and I'll go through these quickly. Ritual water baptism is related to the Jewish culture in the Old Testament. I'll come back to this and give you more next week. So it's Related to Jewish washings, and this is a mikvah. Archaeologically, the Jewish people would be immersed in waters for ceremonial cleansing before they could enter the temple complex on a worship day or a Sabbath. And here's an example, one in Jerusalem. This is near Temple Mount. You see similar mikvahs at Qumran, And by the way, it's spelled both ways, mikveh or mikvah, and also mikvah. Here's an example of two of them, a small one in Qumran, and then a larger one, at least the stairs leading down to where ceremonial washing would take place. I'll give you some verses on all this later. Well, there's one. We'll come back to this. John the Baptist, his baptism was a ritual, water baptism, and it was for preparation for the king, the coming of the king and the kingdom. Very key, very important. Jesus was baptized. He did not need John the Baptist's baptism because he was the king. But he was baptized and I'll give you some reasons next week. And then believers also were baptized. Some of the key verses here. We'll come back to this next week. Okay? And there's Bill the Baptist. <laughs> in the Jordan River, baptizing his grandson. And I've got a bunch of examples of water baptism. I want to get to the next thing here. There's also a second usage, a real identification, no water, no water. It's that identifying, just like a soldier would be identified with the army through that ritual, the believer is identified with Christ, but there's also some other ones, and I'll go through these next time as well. There's a one mentioned in 1 Peter 3, 1 Corinthians 10, baptism into Moses. What's that? It's an identification with Moses and the experience of Moses. Jesus will baptize with fire. That's an identification and enters the identification with the cross. Jesus Christ. This is Christ. A baptism that Christ went through that was not water. And then the third one here, and this is where we'll stop. Also a real spirit baptism. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'll give you some more detail on that next time. This is what we have in Romans 6. It also has this identification element to it. We are identified, we are united, we are joined to Jesus Christ. And being joined to him, we are joined to his death. The passage is going on to say that we are joined to his burial. We are joined to his resurrection. In fact, we are joined to all that Christ is. We have that resource. And based on that, now we can live differently. Does that make sense? So, biblically, is it very clear in Scripture that it is the choice of the individual to choose to be born again, to die to sin? So, is there confusion in Scripture backed by Catholics of why they justify baby baptism? No, no. Or they just pick and choose? No, there's some passages, for example, we'll look at next week. When it talks about Cornelius, he, he was saved and all his household. And the assumption is, you know, he probably had a whole range of kids and maybe even infants. Okay, so passages like that where they draw it, but it's not that, it's not clear. In fact, it's reading into things, into the passage that probably aren't there. Pat? My understanding is that, if, you know, when uh, Constantine became a believer, that he, you know, and, and Christianity became the religion of the Roman Empire the becoming a Christian was equivalent to becoming being a citizen of Rome and that uh, uh, baptism became it, it, over, over time baptism became uh, the, the way you the identification uh, not the identification but equivalent to being a citizen of the state and so in, in the Roman Church you know there was the Holy Roman Empire so the church and state were Conflated. Right. Yeah. So, there, yeah, there's a lot of elements yeah. historically that... So it's, it's more of a historical thing, it's not a scriptural thing. Right. But they justify it based on passages like the Cornelius, and there's another one, the jailer at Philippi, he and his his household, which would include the whole spectrum. Who wants to close force? And We'll come back to all of this and I'll expand it next week. We need to. We need to. We need to. All right. Anyone that is born again, we now have the possibility to live a life empowered with resurrection power empowered by Christ. The unbeliever does not have that. Bill Father God, just thank you for um, thank you for making it clear in your scriptures, or to just read it. Thank you, Father, that this whole issue of identification part of are embracing Christ. We're grateful for the time. We're grateful for you instructing Ray to teach us and giving him the words to say. Mm-hmm. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you seek the words deep in us so that we leave here different than we came because of your may, may this May these words of yours become life. We pray. Amen. Amen. That's all, folks.